and welcome to another Pyro seminar. Uh, this is number, I think it's number five, and uh, I want to take a turn towards the practical here. And um, I'm going to do a series of seminars that look at the practice of pyrotheology. What does it look like? What's the technology of pyrotheology? Um, what are the rituals that are associated with it? What's it attempting to do? Uh, in the previous seminars, I've already talked a little bit about the theory. And uh, of course, this is still going to be theoretical because it's a seminar and uh, you know, we can't actually do the things we're talking about. But uh, the point is pyrotheology is not simply um, a theory, but it's a practice as well. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. So I want to start off with a very simple question. And it's, in fact, it's so simple that we've probably never asked it before. Um, you know, often in science and in philosophy, the most interesting questions are the questions that are so simple we don't see. So, for example, gravity, we all took gravity for granted. Gravity just is. We didn't find it strange or weird. Um, but then, you know, Newton you know, comes along and finds it incredibly bizarre. Why do things fall down and not go up? Now, for us, that is, a, is it's just a ridiculous question because things just fall down. But when you allow yourself to see the world as strange again, well, you know, why, why, why is that the case? And so once you ask that question, uh, you basically, you, what Hegel calls substantive life, you know, you've got your life and you're just in it and things just are the way they are. But uh, what Hegel would talk about would be desubstantializing your life, which means in a sense, realizing that the things that just seem completely normal to you become strange and peculiar and bizarre. Uh, that's a... Um, that's actually something I want to do a whole seminar on. Maybe I'll do the next seminar on because some of the practices of pyrotheology are to do with making the world strange again and the benefit of that. Uh, I call those decentering practices. So we'll definitely do a whole seminar on decentering practices at some point. But the question I want to start this seminar with is the question why do we give ourselves over to structures and systems that are oppressive to us? Now, this might sound like a strange question at first, but uh, I want to unpack it. And there was a point and a time um, in theory where people felt, and some people still think this, most people think this actually, but even in the academy, some people do, is that if you simply educate people, about oppressive systems, um, they will then realize they're oppressive and get out of them. So the idea was education, education, education. You know, if you have a political system that is actually damaging to the poor and to the marginalized, then, but, but, which, but the poor and the marginalized support that system, then the idea was, well, we just have to educate um, the poor so that they realize that they are acting against their own self-interests and the political party that they're supporting actually doesn't care about them, actually wants to take their money and um, you know, is, is, is doing them no good at all. However, what then started to become clear is that this wasn't really the case, is that you could expose 
the oppression of an ideological system and people would still give themselves to it. That education seemed to have a very minimal effect on people's involvement. So for example, you know, you might, you know, you might go to a prosperity church and you go, okay, people are in this prosperity church because they think it's going to work. They're going to get out of their poverty. They're going to make money. So all I have to do is show them that statistically that's not going to happen. So maybe I show, you know, how many people are poor when they go to a prosperity church and how many of those are no longer poor after three years. Or I might give them a comparison to people who aren't involved in the prosperity church who are also part of their community and show that statistically there isn't really any difference in terms of the numbers of people who get out of poverty. Um, you know, these kind of like statistical sociological um, surveys. And so you would think, all oh, right, if I just show people that, they're going to go, oh, that's obvious. Yeah, I'm going to stop going. But it doesn't work people still continue to go. Um, and of course, we kind of, this is why it's such a simple question, because I think hopefully when you're listening to this, you're beginning to go, oh yeah, I see this all the time on social media. Um, I see this all the time where you think that there's, have you, have you ever seen those um, things? Um, I, I have gone silent on most social media, I've got to say, but before I did, um, uh, in terms of listening to stuff, but there were all these things saying, such and such takes down such and such. So this person just devastates or destroys this argument. And it's like you read it and it's like, you know, you read this and you'll realize how ridiculous this political system is. You'll see that it's, it's, it's a devastating critique, but it never is devastating. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't do anything. You know, it's just an echo chamber. The only people who think it's devastating are the ones who already don't believe in that system. But those who do somehow, even if it's a very true and very well-argued piece often seem to not it doesn't have any effect whatsoever right and of course we're living in a time where i think this this is increasingly obvious to to many of us and um, but in the 70s in theory it became obvious and that uh, this is actually why a lot of theorists political theorists turn to psychoanalysis one of the reasons why the theorists turned to psychoanalytic theory is precisely because of the failure of education to kind of like change or destroy oppressive systems. Because in psychoanalysis, the question is this, people go to a psychoanalyst because they are doing something, often they're doing something that's destructive to them. Like for example, a guy can never get close to a woman every time he gets close to her he loses desire for her or um you know a, a woman keeps on having affairs and she she doesn't like to do it she doesn't want to do it but she finds herself doing it and whatever right so you find yourself in an oppressive situation that you know is oppressive because why else would you go into the psychoanalyst if you didn't know it but you can't get out of it right and the idea in psychoanalysis is people are part of oppressive systems because they're getting something out of it. So an analyst will often ask you, not directly, but indirectly, will get you to ask, what are you getting out of what you're doing? Like, for example, say you're a gambler, right? You're addicted to gambling and you're, you, know, you lose a lot of money. Uh, the analyst will strangely, you know, you say, I'm addicted to winning. 
Well, the analyst might say, well, no, you're addicted to losing, right? <laughs> because that's what you're doing all the time. You keep gambling, you keep losing, and you keep going back, right? So in a sense, that's what, you know, you're, that's what you're, you're doing. Why? What, what enjoyment are you getting out of this? And at first it sounds weird because you're like, oh, but I'm not enjoying it. I hate it. But there is something going on, something that you're getting out of this system because, you know, otherwise, why would you be doing it? So a lot of theorists turn to psychoanalysis because they were like, okay, we can expose an oppressive system. We can show that it's not good, but this seems to have a limited effect. What if there is something else going on and we, we're at the wrong level? So in order to understand this, um, I'm going to use an example. This is a true example of a friend of mine, two friends of mine. But actually, I probably knew a dozen couples personally who have gone through a similar thing that I'm about to explain. Um, so it's a very common thing. But just so you know, I'm not plucking this out of thin air. Uh, I want to talk about two friends. I call them Jack and Jill, who have been married for 10 years. Now, they've been married for 10 years and the desire in the relationship is pretty much gone. They like each other, they hang out with each other, but there's no real chemistry anymore, no sexual desire to speak of, right? It's mostly dormant. So after a certain amount of time, Jack meets Snow White and he falls for Snow White and he really desires her and wants her. And so Snow White and Jack have an affair. And the affair doesn't last very long uh, until it's discovered. And so Jill finds out about Snow White, um, partly because Jack, uh, in a strange way, makes kind of makes a, a simple mistake. So simple that you go, he wanted to be found out, maybe, right? But what, for whatever reason, this is all found out. Now, on a surface level, if we were aliens from outer space, we would go, okay, right? Jack hasn't had an affair with Snow White. Uh, these guys are going to split up, right? And of course, on the surface, that's what's going to happen. Um, Jill says to Jack, pack your bags, you know, find, find a new place to live. Uh, until you do, I want you staying in the spare room and I want you, be, I want you out by the end of the week. Um, Jack also agrees. He's like, yeah, the relationship's kind of dead. Um, I need to move out. We both need to move on with our lives, find a way to move forward. So he puts all of his stuff in the car, he looks around for a place to live, and uh, you know, he books an apartment, rents an apartment, etc. However, within a week, uh, Jack and Jill are sleeping together again, and there is this intense desire between them. And although there is anger and bitterness and guilt and all of that on the surface consciously, They've never desired each other as much. Well, not for a long, long time. So you go, like, okay, why is that, right? Say from, from, a, from an outside perspective, you might go, well, they're done because there's legitimate hurt. There's legitimate betrayal. There's legitimate guilt. All of that stuff exists. And rationally, everybody kind of thinks it's time for this whole thing to end. Um, also, it's not really that good for anybody. For Snow White, she feels like, you know, you know she, she's a, the odd one out. Uh, she'll never have the person she wants to be with. Um, she's maybe responsible for breaking up a family. Jack's not happy. 
you say again, he feels like he's been he's deceived um, his partner. Um, he feels that you know that's something he's invested in for many years, and that's all going to end. And Jill, Jill feels hurt, betrayed. Um, you know that her partner has done this to her. So everybody, kind of in a sense, loses in different ways. And yet, within a week. They are not only sleeping together, but also arranging holidays together, getaways together. Um, there's like this rekindling of desire. Now, referring back to the first Pyro seminar where we talked about how desire functions, if you remember, I talked about the object of desire and the object cause of desire. That desire has these two elements. The object of desire is what we want, and the object cause of desire is what makes us want it well using that in this example jack his objective desire is snow white that's what he wants and the object cause of desire is jill because if you'll remember from the previous seminars the object cause of desire is the obstacle it's that which gets in the way but it's really what generates desire so jack says to snow white on a regular basis we can't be together it's impossible. I'm married. I'm never going to leave you to be. To, I'm never going to leave her to be with you. You know, I'm not going to walk away from a ten-year marriage. What we have is just an impossibility. So he is constantly telling Snow White that they can't be together because of Jill, the object cause of desire. Now, why is she the object cause of desire? Very simply, because as soon as the affair is found out, and Jack can be with Snow White because now he's moving out of the house, it's over, so he can actually be with her. The moment this happens, it's like the scales fall from his eyes and he's like, that's the last thing I want. I don't want to be with Snow White. That, that would be crazy, it would never work, right? It was great as a fantasy, but not, now it's possible. He doesn't desire it anymore because the object cause of desire is gone. The thing that's making it impossible is no longer there. You take away the impossibility and you can have what you want and you don't want it anymore. Now, for Jill, it's slightly different. But for Jill as well, as soon as she finds out about Snow White, even despite what she wants consciously, her desire for Jack is evoked. And Jack becomes the object of desire. She wants him again. And Snow White is the object cause. Because Snow White is the one who is taking Jack's desire away from her. Why, why does he want her and not me? Now, interestingly then, Jill, you know, she'll start to stalk Snow White. She'll start to look up Facebook, find out as much as she can about her. Snow White is actually a, a part of the dynamic that's generating the desire. Now, at a conscious level, nobody's happy. Conscious level, this is an oppressive structure. Uh, you know, regardless of anything else, because it's all secretive and et cetera, et cetera, this is, nobody's happy about this. But at an unconscious level, it's, it's doing something really positive for Jack and Jill. It's evoking their desire again. They feel like, you know, they, they were when they first met, even though they're really pissed off with each other or whatever, right? Now, that, by the way, hints at how we are so much more than our consciousness. We think that our consciousness runs the ship, 
but actually unconscious desires um, have more power over us. Um, so, you know, than, than we can imagine. And that's why a lot of my work is not about what's going on consciousness, but actually what's going on at an unconscious level. Um, here, by the way, Jack is a typical obsessive and Jill is a typical hysteric. Um, for an obsessive, the obsessive really wants what, what they can't have, right? An obsessive is always fancying someone who is in another relationship with somebody else um, is impossible to get. Uh, is in another country or is dead or something like that. Something that makes the other impossible is what generates their desire. Hysterics are slightly different. Hysterics, they kind of have what they desire and no longer desire it. And so they, um, in order to keep desire going, need a third person to, as, as a, uh, what would you call it, as a competitor. Um, so to, to, just to take a different example, but to say the same kind of thing. For an hysteric, and in our culture, hysterics are more often women than men, and obsessives are more often men than women. It's not at all exclusively so at all, but it's just in our culture, that's the way it generally works. So, you know, in this, let's take an hysteric first. Say an hysteric woman will often be jealous, right? So she'll be jealous that there's somebody else in, in, involved, that the other person wants somebody else. Now, in, uh, let's imagine that she is in a culture and a religious system that sees that as bad, right? Which is easy to imagine. That's pretty much what we all think. You know, ex excessive jealousy, especially when there's nothing really behind it, um, isn't healthy. So we might say to that woman, you shouldn't be jealous, right? Well, first of all, she knows she shouldn't. You know, you're not telling her anything she doesn't know. You're like, she'll not, of course, I don't want to be jealous. You know, and I know sometimes it's not rational or whatever, right? But here's the thing. Um, her jealousy, you, it's not necessarily that she is attracted to somebody and so is jealous. But it's actually that she's jealous so that she can be attracted to the person. Now, this becomes obvious when for certain people, they, if they ever got rid of their jealousy they would find that they didn't actually find the other person attractive anymore. That weirdly, the jealousy is the very thing that keeps the attraction alive. At an underlying unconscious level, the, the jealousy is what allows there to be passion between the two people. And so in a sense, you know, that's why some people even almost push their partner into fancying somebody else. Um, because that's how their desire functions. But take an obsessive, take an obsessive guy. An obsessive guy is someone who um, will often only be attracted to somebody who they can objectify. As soon as they get close to the subjectivity of another person, they don't desire them anymore. So a typical obsessive is someone who go out, they sleep around, they treat women as objects. And of course, if they live in a religious or cultural system that says you shouldn't do that and again it's very obvious we can imagine that it's mostly true then the obsessive is told you should drop your barriers encounter someone find a woman who you can actually get to know that you can settle down with and marry and and get to know them as a subject and not just treat them as an object but the problem is 
if the obsessive does that, they can find themselves no longer desiring the person. So that's a real disaster. Just you know, So the moment that they succeed in doing what they are supposed to do, it's a fundamental failure at the level of unconscious desire. And they find themselves in a marriage where there's no libidinal desire. Right. Hmm. So in these examples, uh, basically what's happening is the same kind of thing, which is you're part of a structure and a system that is obviously oppressive it's not good whether it's objectifying people of the opposite sex or always being jealous that your partner is with somebody else or in this case of jack and jill and snow white an oppressive system in which everybody ultimately is getting hurt but you still do it oh and by the way another little bit of information about jack and jill is this is the third time this has happened right it's not that this has just happened once this has happened three times in their 10 year relationship. In other words, you know, if it because if it happened once, you, you may be able to kind of like excuse it at a purely conscious level. But when you see it happening three times, you're like, what, what's going on? But it, so at some weird level, not a weird level, it's a very obvious level, the very oppressive structure is giving them something they need, which is need itself. What the oppressive structure is doing is it's generating desire. It's generating desire. And desire is what we want. Desire is fundamentally wonderful in many ways. Like desire is what gets us out of bed in the morning, gets us kind of going out and meeting people. Desire is what is like is a type of fuel. When you don't have desire, you don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to leave the house. You don't want to do anything at all. You know, the lack of desire is very, very painful. And what you find with Jack and Jill, they had a relationship where desire you know, wasn't really functioning. So they find a way to get desire working again, even though, as I say, it wasn't really necessarily good for them. Now, to bring this back then to something like a, a prosperity church, where you go, okay, why does somebody continue to go to a prosperity church? Uh, continue to listen to, to Joel Osteen, for example when it's obviously not working for them. Well, to use the, the work of a theorist called Todd McGowan, who I think I really recommend, his work's very, very good. He says, like, systems like this, they promise you what you want, uh, and they give you what you need. So they promise you what you want, but they give you what you need. What you want generally is wholeness and satisfaction. You want something that will make everything great. And... Prosperity churches promise that. They go like, you know, you can, you can have what you think you need. You can have everything that will fulfill your desire. You, you, know, you will be able to lie down in green pastures. You will, you will be able to find healing from the traumas of your life. You know, all of that. You will have material and emotional wholeness. But it gives you what you need. And by, by that, I mean, it, it doesn't work. So you, what you get is desire, desire for those things. It evokes your desire. So you keep going back and not getting it, not getting quite what you want, but it continues to evoke your desire. And that's the power of it. The very power is its failure. The very success of the system is the fact that it fails to do what it says it'll do. Now, an example of this that I've seen time and again is in churches where, you know, 
you think that if only you did enough stuff, if only you read the Bible through, if only you prayed and fasted enough, if only you did everything that they tell you to do, get rid of your record collection, um, you know, all of that stuff, then, then, you know, you would find the wholeness that you're looking for, right? It's the very fact that you don't do those things or all of them that keeps you enslaved to the system. If you actually do everything that's required, right? And most people who follow my work are versions of this. <laughs> if you're dumb enough to have actually destroyed your record collection and like myself or done everything, fasting and praying, doing everything right and getting to the center, right? Doing it all. The very success is an ultimate failure because you realize the system doesn't work. Now this leads to a rather bizarre sounding conclusion, which is the success of oppressive systems is the fact that they fail us. And the failure of an oppressive system is often exposed when it's successful, as in when you actually succeed. It's the point when you do it all. Yes, I destroyed my record collection. Yes, I you know, gave all my money to the church. Yes, I prayed and fasted for every time you wanted me to. I did everything. Yes, I became an elder. Yes, I got to the center. And you realize, oh, it doesn't work. Then you realize, you know, then there's an opportunity for you to break free. Although sadly, sometimes at that point, your whole career is based on that. So you can't leave. But, but apart from that, you know, you can, at that stage, you can kind of have the insight. So strangely, the very failure to work of a political or religious or cultural system is often what keeps us enslaved to it, keeps us repeating it. We, we're enslaved to the promise because we never get the promise. But if we did get the promise, we'd realize the promise is empty. And I've talked about that in numerous times before. Mm. So what has all this got to do with power of theology and the church? Well, if you take this idea that there are religious and political and cultural systems that promise us what we want, which is satisfaction, but give us what we need, which is an experience of desire, an experience of need, you know, gets our desire going again. But here's the other thing they do. They give us what we need in a way that we don't like. So we experience this need and this desire, but, but we also want to get rid of it. So we're always pointing to the promise. We can get rid of this desire, which we're actually enjoying. We don't know it, but that's actually the enjoyable bit, right? But we, we don't enjoy it. We don't like it. We think that the desire is the problem. What we need uh, is a liturgical structure that gives us what we need in a way that we want, right? In other words, a liturgical structure that gives you desire, that gives you lack, that gives you struggle, but in a way that's enjoyable, that in a way that is actually satisfying, right? Um, which means very concretely, for example, you have a church that promises certainty. Say you have a church that says, you know, this is the answer. You read the right books. You do the right conferences. You can have certainty, right? They're giving you something substantive, but you never get it. 
the more you read your Josh McDowell and all of that, yeah, you know, you somehow have moments where you think you've got it all, but you have to keep reading more. You have to keep going to more conferences because deep down you're, there's still this insecurity, right? But that's, how, that's what keeps you buying the books. It's the insecurity. If you were secure, you wouldn't buy the books. You wouldn't go to the conferences. So weirdly, it's the very insecurity that gets you going to all the conferences, the very insecurity that gets you buying the next Dwayne Gish book or whatever it is, right? It's the very failure that keeps you enslaved to the, to the drive for certainty. But imagine a liturgical structure that helps you enjoy the uncertainty, right? Which, and what is uncertainty? Unknowing. Unknowing is a lack. It's a lack of certainty, right? And we, well, at first we go, I don't want uncertainty. That's a terrible thing. That's a natural thing for us to think. I don't want this doubt, this unknowing, this mystery. I want to know. Um, if, if I would unravel if, if I started to ask those questions. But this alternative liturgical structure that I'm talking about it doesn't change the doubt and the unknowing. It just brings to the surface and helps you enjoy it. You're not unraveling, you're raveling. And as you know from if you've heard me talk before, unraveling and raveling mean exactly the same thing. It's just raveling has a very positive sense because it doesn't have the negative um you're not unraveling you're raveling right enjoy it so in a sense all the things that you think are bad dissatisfaction not having what you want not knowing things these things which which we think are bad that often the religious structures promise they can satisfy and fill and get rid of a pyrotheological liturgy is one that actually helps you enjoy those things, turn them into fuel for transformation and change. This, as I, I won't go into detail here because I've already talked about, I think I've talked about the rebel, the revolutionary and the conservative in previous Paro seminars. If you haven't uh, watched those yet, I would advise you to go back and, and, and look at those because they'll fill in some of the gaps here. But this idea of a liturgical structure that, that turns these things that we think are problematic into things that we enjoy. I mean, think of the process of therapy itself. You know, what is one of the basic things of psychoanalysis is that you enjoy your craziness. <laughs> um, because what are you doing once or twice or three times a week? You're talking about all these difficult things. You're talking about all these problems and uh, weird idiosyncrasies you have. But it's kind of enjoyable you kind of like it, right? Weirdly, it's a, it's strangely a structure that helps you enjoy your craziness, <laughs> that, that you enjoy like talking about it, you enjoy reflecting on it. Um, it's not that every moment of analysis is enjoyable, absolutely not, you know, it can be a very painful process, but, but weirdly, it's actually quite it's quite cool. People look forward to their analysis. They look forward to that one hour in their week where they can sit down and, and, and you think that's strange to have a ritual that actually draws you into that stuff. They're like, no, that wouldn't be pleasurable. But the very structure of analysis, just as very existence in a weird sense is about a type of practice in which you enjoy um, your doubts, your fears, all of that kind of stuff. Now, what this means is, what would it, what would it look like to have a community or a political system that helped us enjoy 
our struggles, that helped us enjoy our lack of knowing, that didn't offer us easy answers to what's called scapegoating, easy answers to complex problems, didn't offer us easy utopias. Oh, everything will be perfect if only we get rid of these people or if only we fix this problem, everything will be wonderful. What if, what would it look like to have a political system in which you embrace the difficulties and the complexities of life and you enjoyed them? Which doesn't mean you sit back and don't do anything about them. Um, as I said, if you watch the previous seminars where I talked about this Camus rebel, the rebel is a person who enjoys transformation and change, but they enjoy the very act and the, itself. They're not like looking to some final end to, and then they'll be happy. They enjoy the, the challenge and the struggle of life and getting involved in the struggle of life. And, and they actually are, they, they find enjoyment in that very, that very activity. Mm. Um, this for me is what the church can do. The church can be a community in which it creates a liturgical structure where that embraces the dark night of the soul, mystery, unknowing, and complexity. I mean, the mystics are one example of this. Um, I th you know, I, I, in one sense, I think it's an outdated example. I think that there's a new form of mysticism that, you know, but, you know, that's, that's, that's different from the ancient mysticism, but in, in its day, the mystics were the ones who took the unknowing and made it something wonderful. They actually created a liturgical activity out of, out of what was seen as bad. They kind of went, no, 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 the, the cloud of unknowing, the dark night of the soul, this is, this is like the experience of where you're standing with Christ on the cross. This is the experience where, where, where life is at its most intense and its richest. Right? So, in light of that, what I want to do is I want to read you one liturgy from Icon that, that tried to do this. Now, <clears throat> this, this Icon gathering was called The End, and it was actually the final Icon. Um, there were two versions of it. Uh, there was one version that was done in Belfast. Uh, that's the one I'm going to read to you. And uh, it was done in Belfast to kind of mark the end of Icon locally and then we did a version in Greenbelt uh, which was kind of to mark the end of ICON nationally. I say we, at this stage I wasn't involved in ICON actually but I participated in both which was really amazing to be there to kind of experience these final gatherings of the community that I'd founded and been part of for over 10 years. Now interestingly they were both incredibly different <laughs> even though they were both rep repeating they repeated differently um the second one was probably the the better one um it was uh um very surreal and i'm um i'm going to actually link to it so that you can read about it but um everyone was dressed in elvis costumes um and it was very dark and it felt like a david lynch movie and yeah so it was very interesting but the one that I'm going to read to you uh, happened in a barge uh, in Belfast as part of my wake festival. Um, and uh, the, the, this, this reading is from Catherine Sarah Moody. Catherine Sarah Moody is basically, you know, one of the leading experts in parotheology and radical theology. She has done, you know, a lot of critical work on, on my own writings and my own practice. And, uh, you know, there's, there's virtually nobody who 
uh, knows pyrotheology better than, than Catherine. There's actually two theorists who have done a lot of participant observation on, on my work um, and written books on it. Uh, the other is Gladys Ganell and um, uh, 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 Gerardo um, Matti. Um, and uh, that they wrote a sociological text. And then there's um, Catherine Sarah Moody who wrote this philosophical text. So this reading is from Catherine Sarah Moody's book. I'm gonna link to this excerpt in the Paro uh, on the Patreon page. And also I'll link to the one that I'm not reading so that you can see it. Uh, let me see, I just have to find it, sorry. Uh, where is it gone? Here we go. Um, okay, goes like this. Inside a large industrial barge in Belfast, chairs are set out across half of the room, an aisle down the centre, all facing a small stage decorated with dead flowers. On the stage there is a black coffin. Projected onto a screen above, above is the opening sequence of Lars von Trier's film Melancholia, which depicts the destruction of the earth. Shizek notes that in most Hollywood movies, an ambiguous thing both impedes the coming together of a couple and enables the creation of the couple at the point at which they overcome this obstacle. Which basically means, by the way, that you know you see a film like a romance, there's something that gets in the way of two people being together, and the whole movie is about how they get rid of the obstacle to finally be together, and then the movie ends. Which um, you know, the reason why the movie ends there is because if it kept going, um, you would see how the relationship degenerates and uh, people arguing about who's going to put the trash out, right? It has to end at that point because um, at that point, they've overcome the object cause of desire. They've got the object of desire and that will lead to its own problems. Actually, there was a movie I watched last night that was a good version of this, or it was a playful version of what happens after the happy ending. Um, it was called Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um, about two assassins who don't know that they're assassins. They don't know that the other person's an assassin. But, you know, they have like this boring life because they've been married for years. And, um, yeah, so it's quite, it's quite a funny movie. Um, okay, so that's what she's ex talking about. Uh, in this film, however, the thing, which is the celestial object obstacle, the planet that's on a collision course, is not averted but destroys Earth. So basically, the obstacle isn't overcome in melancholia. Uh, the obstacle actually, so you know, that would be like a romance where um, the obstacle, which is maybe the woman's married to somebody else, um, at the very end, uh, you know, the obstacle's not removed. In fact, the obstacle kills the other guy or something like that. You know, the obstacle's not removed. It actually destroys the relationship. <clears throat> so... In melancholia, the obstacle actually destroys the earth. Right? For Shizek, this means that it is the thing at its purest. Uh, it is the real thing that dissolves any symbolic frame. I'll explain this. Sorry, it's an academic text. So um, uh, we see it. it. It is our death. We cannot do anything. And he says the character of Justine's is the only one who is able to propose an appropriate answer to the impending catastrophe and to the total obliteration of every symbolic frame. 
Her answer is to create a protection, a magic cave that functions not as a beautiful lie preventing the destruction of the earth, but as, as a symbolic fiction or sustaining fantasy that enables us to joyously accept the end. Okay. So basically what's being said there is, you know, if you're facing death, someone's facing, they've got pancreatic cancer, they're going to die. The noble lie would be telling them that it's fine. Oh, everything's going to be okay. Everything's fine. And the, the, this noble lie goes way back to kind of ancient Greece. Um, and I hear pastors talk about this. Pastors who go, well, I don't really believe this or I don't think it's true, but hey, it's, it's something that helps people live. You know, imagine you took this away from them. Life would be meaningless. So it's, it's kind of like a noble lie, right? Um, another one, by the way, is, is forgetting the death through intoxication. So you know you're going to die, but you just throw yourself into your work or you just get drunk or you just watch crap TV all the time and you try to forget the truth of your death through intoxication, right? Um, fleeing from it. But she's actually making the point that melancholia doesn't do that. It does have a type of ritual, a type of, there is a, there is a response to the catastrophic end of the earth. The response is where Justine creates a magic cave. But the magic cave isn't a noble lie. It's not like she says to the kid who's in the magic cave with her, oh, this will protect us from the end of the world. And it's not some sort of orgy of intoxication where somehow this magic cave prevents you from facing the fact that the planet is going to destroy you. What happens is the, is the magic cave allows you to sustain the reality of the end okay so that's that's what she writes just before she explains what we do so in this barge where it's set up with chairs and an aisle down the center she says we line up to pay our final respects to the figure in the coffin right there's a coffin at the front but inside there is a mirror which reflects back to us our own image this is our funeral our end a reworking of W.E.H. Alden's um, Stop the Clocks encircles us, in which there is a shift in perspective from the original text, so it becomes the deceased who is speaking. To quote, I was your north, your south, your east and west, your working week and your Sunday rest, your noon, your midnight, your talk, your song. You thought that love would last forever. You were wrong. Uh, Paul Bears step forward and take the coffin from the stage to the center of a space behind us, and we form a circle around it, creating the outer edge of the round face of a clock. So there's a clock actually chalked onto the ground, and we encircle the clock. Um, Roman numerals marked out the ground beneath our feet. We fill out our own death certificates, light our candles in darkness and silence, and hold each other's hands, creating our own magic circle together in the face of the certainty of our um, eventual end. This performance, entitled The End, was part of Peter's 2013 Wake Retreat. And as such, many of those gathered had high expectations of the evening. 
as well as reservations, given Icon's reputation for not only thought-provoking, but also existentially disturbing artistic events. But much of this transformance art piece revolved around very familiar ideas, images, and themes about endings, morality, and death. Remarking upon the cliched nature of the different elements of the performance in my field notes, I felt as if this gathering was telling me something I already knew. But I also knew that drawing mere intellectual assent from those present, that we now know we're going to die, that the end is already here, the already nigh, could not be all that this transformance art event was ultimately about. Indeed, the end illustrated well the need to move from an intellectual engagement with the themes and ideas of a particular performance piece to an embodied experience of the existential moment that an idea permeates through to the body. Although it did so in a way unforeseen by its creators. For I later found out that the moment that created this shift for me was completely un unanticipated and unintentional. A man entered the circle that we had created, lift, lifted the co coffin to his shoulder, then threw it onto the ground. The coffin breaks open, spilling forth black cloth, ribbon and paper, and spewing out a cloud of dust. During the minutes of silence after this act, a ripple of coughs slowly erupts around the circle as the billowing dust rises up from the coffin and around the room, slowly reaching our lungs. At that moment, the end was not merely about affirming knowledge that we already had. One day we will be dead, we will decay, we will be dust. Rather, it became about allowing our bodies to ingest this idea letting our bodies know what we already knew but refused to know. We know that we are finite beings, that one day we will be dead and gone. But through what Julian Barnes refers to as the sin of height and what Bruin characterizes as our fascination with transcending our finitude, we tend to disavow the knowledge that death means a return to this world rather than a flight to, them to another. We know that we cannot escape death, and yet in our everyday lives, material actions and social interactions, we turn to technology, pharmacology, art, sex or religion to help us achieve distance from this knowledge, enabling us to persist in activities, thereby maintaining the ideological illusion that escape is possible. Um, I just want to go down, yes. During this moment of the end, we took physically into our bodies, into our material reality, something that we already knew. But the artistic form enabled us to do so in such a way that we could participate in a bodily realization of our own mortality and relation to death without its weight completely crushing us. We ingested the idea of death and decay materially by physically ingesting the dust which encouraged us to move from intellectual ascent to embodied existential experience. Um, just, to, just to quote one tiny bit more, it's quite funny because um, she says, oh yeah, this wasn't exactly our intention. We didn't realize, but there was supposed to be dust, but we didn't realize that it would be a lot of dust and that people would be coughing. Um, and, uh, and she's right that it was more cliche than usual. Um, 
So somebody, we, we, in part of our advertising for the next event, we described Icon as, uh, what is it? Um, uh, I think a series, oh, a series of cliches done so ineptly as to seem profound. So, you know, often things happen in Icon that we didn't fully anticipate, but actually what happened is we, we actually ended up doing what we wanted to do um, uh, through this experience of the dust. So just let me, um, you know, unpack this. This gathering was about the end of Icon, but it was also about facing our own growing old and our own dying. It was weirdly um, the creation of our own funeral. Uh, one bit that Catherine doesn't mention is that Chris Fry, who was part of the organizing group, he's a psychoanalyst, he just lost someone very close to him like two days before. And so he did a very moving reading about that where he talked about how, you know, this can all seem cliched until, you know, someone we love dies, that this is not a cliche, that this, that what we're doing here in a sense means something. It was a very, very powerful moment because he was mourning really as he was kind of, he was in a place of mourning while this icon was happening. But the idea was, of course, we look in the coffin, we see our own faces, we circle around a clock, we acknowledge that things pass, that things come to an end. Uh, we you know, write our own death certificates. We hold each other's hands in this dark barge um, on the, the Ligon River in Belfast. But the idea is that, yeah, we create this, like, like the magic circle in Melancholia, a ritual that does not have the noble lie, doesn't try to hide from the fact of death and the unknowing that death represents for us, uh, nor is it an intoxication through loud music and cheering and whatever, like, you know, we, we forget about it. The, the idea was we create a ritual that brings us into the heart of acknowledging that intellectually, but existentially more important, more importantly, um, but in such a way that it doesn't crush us. In fact, in such a way that is enjoyable. This was very important with an icon is that, you know, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. I mean, the idea that our advertising was, you know, um, a series of cliches done so ineptly as to seem profound. But that, you know, the, the actual R was, you know, this was mostly quite intense, but it was designed to help actually rob this death of its sting, to create a liturgical structure that helped us to kind of face something that's very true, the death of those we love, our own demise, the own, the, our own sense of unknowing about what that means. Is that the end end? Is that the very end of everything? Um, are we, is there a way of thinking about it that actually we return to just the you know, energy and part of the universe? Or is it, you know, um, is there something else, you know, that beyond death, but the unknowing of all of that, or just kind of confronting it and finding peace with it um, was the idea of the liturgical structure. And in fact, the whole festival, I do it every year, it's called Wake now. It's called Wake because Wake is an Irish uh, ritual, which is kind of a death ritual. It's, you know, it used to be you would watch over the dead body I think it's for like 24 hours or something. But a wake is pretty much a party that you have 
after a funeral where you reminisce about the person who's died. You laugh, you cry, you drink, you dance, you sing. And it's a space in which you confront the death. You don't, it's, not a, it's not a ritual that creates a noble lie. There's nothing about it that says what's going to happen, how everything's fine. It doesn't do that. It doesn't say everything's not fine. It doesn't engage in that. And it's not about being so intoxicated that you forget, although I guess sometimes that happens. But at its best, awake is about a place where you create a liturgical structure that helps you bear the weight and even actually find something worth celebrating in loss itself. And of course, that's the, that's the purpose of the Wake Festival. And it's the purpose of parotheology, that in the same way as Jesus's parables, you know, they bring unknowing, they, they break our understanding of how the world works, the, of, of who's right, who's wrong, who's inside, who's outside, who's good, who's bad. In the same way that 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 the the whole kind of like a ministry of Jesus that we read about in the biblical text was really about problematizing our understanding of us being kind of like having the answer and knowing the truth. That there was this deconstructive element to the text. It's living that out and finding some sort of pleasure and enjoyment and freedom within that. Okay. So there you go. That's, that's some thoughts. Um, I wonder if any of you have any questions or thoughts on that. Um, I'm just going to open up the question box. Let's see. Oh, yeah, we've got a few here. Okay, so Chris says, um, oh, sorry, I'll go right. Yeah, Chris says, hi, Pete. As I said, I was at an event with Barry Taylor um, and Joseph Gustafsson, if I said it correctly, um, today, um, together with uh, Harm Jan. Brilliant. I know all of these people. They're all wonderful people. It was very cool. That's good. However, I sort of couldn't shake the feeling that radical theology has the tendency to stay in the realm of intellectual discourse. Yep. Is it important to have kneeled the theology and philosophy down before developing and engaging in the decentering practices, transformance art, or suspended space you talk about? Chris, that's a brilliant question. Okay. Let me tell you, um, I started doing this work. I started, right, I, so I started doing ICON when I was in my 20s, early 20s. I had no idea what I was doing. I have been on this journey in practice before I ever had any grasp of the theory. And I, yeah, I, I need to say that because I, when people hear me talk now, I, of course, I, I've, I'm 43. I can't remember what age I am. I'm 44, 43. No idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think I'm 44. Um, but whatever age I am, uh, I've been doing this for a long time. And over the last 10 years, I think I've really begun to develop um, a robust way of reflecting on what I do. But the problem is, it sounds like I developed that first and then did the theory, but it was the other way around. We started doing this stuff and not knowing exactly what we were doing and the theory developed out of it. Um, so Chris, absolutely. Like I've got to say this clearly is like, yeah, no, you, I want people to just, I, I want these seminars not to put people off to go, Oh my goodness, I have to know all this theory before I can do it. I want these seminars to help somebody go, Oh, right. So if I'm doing something, we should celebrate doubt, ambiguity and complexity in some sort of way. 
But I realize that sometimes that's not what happens. What happens is people are like, oh my goodness, like you have to, you have to spend 20 years doing research before you can do something. Absolutely not. I did all of this stuff before I knew what I was doing. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was crap. Didn't care. You know, some of our icons were hilariously bad. Um, and all I want from these Pyro seminars is in a sense to help people, uh, in a sense, make fewer mistakes than I made. We'll all make mistakes, but um, I want to help guide. Uh, but I do not in any way want it to seem like there is um, a certain uh, criteria that you need to hit before you can kind of do it. I mean, I'll be honest, but I would love to. It's kind of like Freud didn't have a degree in psychoanalysis. Of course, he's developing psychoanalysis. Um, but, you know, once it's been around for a while, then you develop kind of like uh, classes and educational systems and books and they become really useful if you want to be part of that field and I guess in the next 10 or 15 years you know the practices there are going to be more books about how to do this stuff and I will recommend that people listen to these seminars and read those books that's really important but um, the proof is in the pudding and my whole thing is like I am more interested Chris like yourself maybe in the practice of this than the theory of it. And I know that seems unlikely because you only ever hear me talk about the theory because I'm always talking on the computer. But tomorrow, for example, I'm, I'm part of a, a next two weeks, I'm part of um, Sunday service, a church here in LA that tries to live this stuff out in practice. So I don't know if that answered it, but yeah, no, you, you do not need that stuff. And what you need is sadly lots of courage to just go out and do it. Um, and uh, you work it out on the way and yeah and then there's a second part to the question um, I grew up in a rather conservative uh, church community and I still go there sometimes when I'm home oh well, yeah you go when you're home yeah uh, they now asked me to do an event there with around 30 people that are around 18 to 24 years old I really want to do something with the content of idolatry of God and especially in a transformance arty way However, I don't know where to start. What would be a good subject to tackle or engage with in such a place, especially when no one is familiar with your stuff? Oh, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. First of all, definitely do it, I think. I don't know. Um, if they're asking you, then, you know, they must be open to a little bit of, uh, you know, open to you messing with things a little bit. Um, first, a disclaimer. I do not know what you should do, only because I don't know the community don't know the background, anything like that. Like, I feel like um, to answer that question, I'd have to sit with you for a good long time and chat back and forth, maybe meet the people in the community. So I don't know, but you do. Um, because, you know, you know the community, you'll probably have a better idea. But that's not that useful, so I'll try and say something. Like, so the, the trick for me is maybe start by trying to identify what is the unspoken in the community. So there's two types of unspoken. There's the unspoken of things you don't speak about because you don't care. And there's the unspoken, which is you don't speak about because you don't speak about that stuff. <clears throat> um, so for example, in Northern Ireland, you didn't speak about your Buddhist neighbor, but because you didn't have really Buddhist neighbors, you didn't think about Buddhism. If you did have a Buddhist neighbor, you didn't care. But if you're in a Protestant community, you also didn't talk about your Catholic neighbor. And that type of not speaking was actually significant. So is there something that's, that's not spoken about? Like, for example, do people not talk about doubt, but they don't talk about it because it's there, it's there in the room. 
So what is, what is the unspoken? That's always a good place to start because you could create a, 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 a transformance art type thing around that. Um, so let's take an example of doubt. Um, it's a community where people do ask questions, et cetera, et cetera, but maybe it's just not really brought to the surface. So you try to create a gathering that draws out the doubt and the unknowing as part of the Christian tradition and helps people to write down their questions and doesn't try to answer them or put them, just creates a space where they can be brought to the surface. Um, another quick thing would be a question we all, often ask an icon is like, what are the defense mechanisms in our communities? Like, what are the, like, do we split? Do we create good people and bad people? Do we, um, are we beautiful souls? The beautiful souls, a defense mechanism is to do with splitting actually where you, I am innocent and good and the badness is out there in the world. Um, you know, say for example, you've got a community that does that, not consciously, but it just tends to see themselves as pure and good and the badness out there. Then a transformance art gathering might be trying to draw out how actually that, that's much more complicated and that the, the badness that we think is out in the world is actually within us. So a lot of it is about trying to identify the defense mechanisms in your community and the unspoken truths of your community and trying to find indirect ways of bringing that to the surface. So if it's a very evangelical community, you might want to use the Bible a lot more than if it's a traditional or mainline community where you might be able to use more you know, you know, resources from other traditions, all of that stuff. You want to kind of like challenge, but not freak everybody out. And, and you want to use your own tradition but give it a twist. So, you know, take stuff from your own tradition, but the radical stuff within your own tradition, because it's easier to swallow. Those are just some preliminary examples. Also, I would recommend you read a lot of the icon gatherings, not so that you repeat them, but just so that you see what we did in our context. Um, and, uh, and then Chris says, last question, have you seen the new Guardians of the Galaxy? There's some radical, there's some radical theology there. Okay, I'll have to look, check it out. I quite like the first one, but I saw the trailer for the second one and it didn't look so good, but I do see it's getting good reviews. I did see Alien yesterday and that's my philosophical film. There's a lot in Alien. That's very, very good. Um, Dennis says, uh, Peter, it seems, oh, sorry. It seems that many of the activities you describe are more shocking and disturbing than enjoyable, right? Can, a, can an existential awakening be touched uh, couched in joy. Yes, um, Dennis, you know, the one I read it was probably one of our darkest. Um, although even then, if you were there, the cliches were quite kind of like cliched. So, but, but I totally get what you're saying. But no, I, I actually, you'll have heard me say this before, but actually comedians are one of the privileged groups, I think, for doing this stuff. And actually in Icon, we never did a full-on comedy event but it was only because we didn't have that skill set at the time now we do have in belfast that skill set so i would definitely do an icon that's that's fully comedic but we definitely had comedic elements um i would say oh and some of the best icon stories are hilarious stories stories where something went wrong like for example we did we did a one on on easter sunday which was um actually about Judas and it was very dark and it was very somber. Um, the barman, Francie, 
doing the bar at the darkest moment where we were like, and we are all Judas, he shouts out at the top of his voice, happy fucking Easter to you as well, right? And everyone started to laugh. It was kind of a really funny moment. So now that was unintentionally funny, but there were, there, so there was lots of unintentional humor in Icon, but there was also um, often a real softness, actually, um, and humor. The softness often came from Padre Gautuma. Uh, I'd recommend his work. It's a fundamentally brilliant poet and singer-songwriter. He's been on Bean a few times. Krista Tippett really likes him. And uh, he's, uh, he was a key member of Icon. And if you hear him, I'm recommending you hear him because when you hear him, you'll realize how soft his, his hard truths are. <laughs> and he's also humorous in a very understated way. Um, you'll also know if you've heard me talk, you know, I, I often use humorous stories in order to communicate this. So um, again, I'm, I'm saying in a long way, I'm just saying to you, no, absolutely, not only can it be couched in joy, but I think it often should be. I don't think it should always be absolutely, I mean, you know, some dark icons we have, but, but humor is actually one of the great ways for us to encounter truths that we couldn't encounter any other way. Just one quick example. Um, there's comedians, they do this all the time, loads of examples where they'll talk about an embarrassing medical procedure, right? Something that if it happened to you or me, you'd not want to talk about, right? You would repress it. You know, you want to be dignified and not know that somebody, you know, stuck their finger up your ass or whatever, right? You don't want people to know that. But then a comedian makes a joke about it and you laugh about it. And it kind of makes you go, it's not embarrassing. That's fine, right? That's okay. That's, that's part of being human. And so the humor actually allows you to, you know, that thing that you're carrying about, which actually can be destructive. Like you're like, oh, this, you know, I've got humiliating disease. It's so embarrassing. I can't talk about it. And then this comedian, you realize that they've gone through that and worse. And it kind of makes you feel better. So yeah, comedy, very, very important. Very, very important. Thank you. Um, Oh, great. The questions are coming thick and fast now. This is great. Joan says, um, have you encountered secular versions of these decentering practices? Me uh, methods to facilitate a group in exploring the slow, difficult work of changing things in an enjoyable way. We'd love to bring this notion to my work, attempting to improve my uh, province's healthcare system. Very cool. Um, but obviously my colleagues come from a variety of religious backgrounds. Joan, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, First of all, I'll say a negative, <clears throat> which is that I've seen secular groups do exactly what I critique in the religious world. I know humanist, uh, humanist uh, chaplains who, in a sense, are attempting to kind of replicate either the noble lie or the type of intoxication. Um, but that's just because we're human. You know, you're going to find sacred and secular versions of that, but you also find sacred and secular versions of communities that um, kind of like help you confront. I think a really good secular example, some people would disagree with me on this, but is Alain de Bouton. Now, he does in a specifically religious, non-religious way, but Alain de Bouton's work um, is trying to create a secular version of what we do in ICON. So in one sense, what we're doing in Icon and what he does with what's called the School of Life are very similar. So I, I would say actually look at, so look at the School of Life. Um, that, that, that's a useful secular version, I think, of, of, of much of what I'm doing. 
Um, I've talked to Alder Bouton a couple of times actually just online and um, I think what he's doing is very, very interesting. Um, let's see, uh, Candice, hello, how's it going? Um, says, it's a comment rather than a question, brilliant. I'm planning to start to do events on my own. Good on you. Um, specifically musical events since I'm a musician and that's what I, uh, that's what I know to do well. I already planned three events in my hometown this summer. Uh, I'm so glad you said we should just have the courage to put these things into practice because I kind of feel like a fish out of water. I'm nervous about how they'll be received, but I think it'll be cool experience either way. Yeah, that's it. And here, I, and here's my encouragement. It might feel terribly, might not work at all. Who cares? That's, that's the enjoyment of just doing it. Like I did a thing called Icon, which actually was fun, called SARM Project. It was actually the, the preliminary you know, to Icon, but I've done lots of that. I've done lots of things that don't work. I say half of Icons don't work. I had a friend read 10 of the services that I had in my first book. And he said to me, Pete, these services sound amazing. These gatherings sound fantastic. He said, they were never that good when I was there. Right. And I realized that, you know, they sounded a lot better when you put them on paper. Some of them, some of them were great and some of them were a disaster, but there was this playfulness among the people of Icon that we didn't mind. So if you can, in fact, we had five principles. We call them coordinates. Icon was iconic, emerge, uh, iconic heretical emerging. Oh my goodness, I can't remember that. Iconic heretical emerging something and feeling. But feeling was in there that we that um, that you know this is not going to work. Even when it works, it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it doubly doesn't work. And by having that playfully in, in our coordinates, it was like saying, like, we're experimenters. And even if something doesn't work, that tells you it didn't work. So go for it. And, um, and the great thing about I, what I do is, like, try and find good people you trust, who you know, who can help you with good skills and all of that. Get a little community of people and start experimenting. Um, oh, yes. And Dennis says, what was... Paul's name again uh, in English, not Irish. Yes, it's not Paul. Actually, it's Patrick. Um, his 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 English name would be Patrick uh, Tumi, but it's Podrig Otuma, P A D R A I G, Podrig, and then Otuma O T U M A, Podrig Podrig Otuma. Uh, and then Chris says, where, where do I find the icon examples, by the way? Looking forward to go through it. Okay, there's lots that I still haven't written down. I've got loads of them. But there's 10 in my first book, How Not to Speak of God. And then there's like three in, uh, I think, Idolatry of God. And there's decentering Practices I talk about, I think, in, in uh, The Divine Magician. So I, I always, in every book I write, I try to have practical examples. Um, but there's 10 in my How Not to Speak of God. And then, as I say, I think it's idolatry. There's three um, or two, two or three. The, the last section of idolatry, I think, has is, is, is got some, some ones that we did. It could have been insurrection. But, um, yeah, there's a good place to go to see some of them. Oh, yeah, three in idolatry. Yeah, so three in idolatry and 10 in How Not to Speak. Uh, and, um, and then I'm going to put up two in Patreon today. Not today, well, yeah, probably today, uh, so that you can have a look at those as well. All right, well, listen, I have had you online for an hour and 15 minutes now. Um, 
Uh, I really appreciate you checking in with this. I'm going to say develop this practice stuff a little bit more in upcoming Paro seminars. But in this seminar, the thing to kind of remember was we started off with the question, why do we give ourselves over to oppressive structures that we know are oppressive to us? And I use the psychoanalytic example that it's often because we're getting something out of it that, that we need as people. And what we need is desire. What we need is need. But we often don't think we do need that. In fact, we try to hide from it. We try to get rid of it. But, but the very failure of oppressive systems is they promise us satisfaction, but they give us actually a lack, but in a way that's destructive and problematic. And I use Jack and Jill and Snow White as an example of that. And then I talk about the church. The church's liturgical structure should be a place in which we get need, we get desire, but in a way that we enjoy, in a way that is satisfied. So in a sense, satisfying. So in a way, God is not the object that fixes our desire. God is not the object that fulfills us. God is that which is dispersed in the struggle of life itself. So it's that, that helps us enjoy and sublimate and use the struggles of life in order to kind of progress, where we enjoy the grit and grime of life and find pleasure in the struggle of life itself. Not that we don't enjoy the, the, the moments when things go really well for us. We can, of course, enjoy it. Just like when your football team wins, you can enjoy that. But the enjoyment of football is not your team winning. The enjoyment of football is being with your team through the good times and the bad times and knowing the stories of your team and who they are and what's going on. The enjoyment is in the struggle itself because football never ends. It just goes on forever. And that's, that's, what, that's what the liturgy of pyrotheology is about. So you would have a liturgy that embraces doubt, complexity, unknowing, frustrations, brings that to the surface, not to fix it, not to doesn't try to deny it, doesn't give you a noble lie, doesn't try and give you intoxication to forget it, but allows it to come to the surface in a way that we can actually enjoy. Just like you can enjoy a psychoanalytic session, even though you're talking about difficult things, you feel lighter and better for it. And I think that's the core of the Christian message, which is salvation from the need for certainty and satisfaction, finding God in the midst of the struggle itself. There you go. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank you for supporting me on Patreon. And